0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 7th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Police have an important job to do, but something has changed over the last few decades that's left more people fearful of police and police more aggressive toward the people they're supposed to protect. Neil Franklin is a 34-year veteran of both the Maryland State Police and the Baltimore Police Department. He is now Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We spoke today. Anybody who listens to this podcast a lot has probably heard me make mention of this a couple of times, and Billy Murphy, the uh, noted uh, defense attorney in, in Baltimore, has said that the, the critical uh, moment when, uh, as he describes it, the us versus them mentality between cops and the policed, uh, just regular folks, uh, he says the the moment where that us versus them mentality arrived was when cops stopped walking the beat. A lot of discretion goes out the window and you have this literal barrier between yourself and the people you're supposed to be uh, making sure are safe and to are able to freely enjoy their lives. What do you
1: think of that? Well, as Billy tends to do, I think he hit another nail squarely on a hit. As you mentioned that, as you started talking about that, I started thinking back to my neighborhood in Baltimore, Reservoir Hill. And as a a kid growing up, even while you were talking, there was one officer who came to mind. His name was, we called him Reds because he had red hair. And our neighborhood, that was his post. And even though he was driving a car, you know, for the most part, he would park that car. And he would get out and walk through the neighborhood. He would even walk down the alley that we played, this game called Roly-Poly, and, and he'd stop and he'd play with us. You know, he, we would have conversations. Uh, uh, we had a makeshift basketball hoop on a telephone pole, you know, and he would take his hat off, lay it on a wall, and there he is out there playing basketball for a little bit. He knew each and every one of us by name. Obviously we knew him, he knew our parents, our parents knew him. And when I compare that to today in that very same neighborhood, my mother still lives there in the same house so we're talking about over 50 years. I can guarantee you my mother doesn't know the name of any of the police officers who have that post. She never talks about them and I know if she did, she would. When I'm there over at the house, I don't see any police officers walking anywhere in the neighborhood. Occasionally, you might see a car drive through, but the windows are up. Either the heat is on, or if it's the summertime, the air conditioner is on, so the windows stay up. Billy was right,
0: Billy was right. So uh, that's a technological and cultural shift, and it's not really clear, perhaps, until after one of those changes occurs that we actually have lost something in terms of of what we expect from police and some of the benefits of having uh, people who are uh, ingrained within a community. So getting back to there seems now less simple because of this, what has become increasingly a very strong us versus them Mm -hmm. mentality within policing and within communities Mm -hmm. as well. Mm Here's something that's interesting, though, when you talked
1: about technology, okay, cars, you know, and and the advantages of cars being able to get from point A to point B quickly. When we started tethering ourselves, police officers, to cars, it's when the radios were in the car. You know, prior to the radios, we had call boxes on the corner, you know, so that police officer walking the post they would get their information from the call box or they would give information through the call box. Um, Obviously, you know, you had to get out of the car to do that. So it was very advantageous to be walking the post. Radios are now went to being in cars. So now it became advantageous for the police officer to be by the radio all the time, which was in the car. Now we have our own personalized radios. Every police officer has a radio attached to them. You would think that, oh, wow, here's an opportunity for us to get back out of the car on the sidewalks and walking the neighborhoods. But that never happened. And I think a lot of it has to do with the comfort of the car as well. And when I say comfort, I'm not just talking about physical comfort. I'm also talking about a psychological comfort for the police officer to be able to cordon themselves off from people, from activity, from negative activity. It's an environment that you can control. And for police, it's all about control. Getting back on the beat, walking through the neighborhoods, yeah, you don't control too much of that. But you could if you knew
0: how to police. All right, which leads me to my next question. Uh, What are – I don't want to say easy ways because it doesn't seem like there are a lot of easy ways. What are some not complicated ways to sort of reassert that community involvement within policing? I
1: think it first begins with responsibility and management needs to give police officers the responsibility for their post, their assigned area. Right now, we're still counting numbers. It's all about numbers. And unfortunately, policing took a wrong turn somewhere and we started equating success with arrest numbers. If you have high arrest numbers, that means you have high crime. We should be seeking a way to get back to low numbers. And again, so how do you do that? You do that with responsibility. You assign a post to a police officer and you say, this is your responsibility. We're going to teach you how to develop relationships with people. We're going to teach you how to be out of the car. We're going to teach you um, how to interact with people appropriately. And then it's going to be on you. We want to see low numbers. Okay. If you have uh, so many burglaries occurring, my question is going to be, so what are you doing? How many people are you talking to? Are, are you getting information from people? Are you doing the right things to find out who the people are committing the burglaries? You see, then when you, when you do that and you find the people committing the burglaries and you make that arrest, you know what your burglaries, your numbers are going to go down. I think we've, we've somehow gotten to a point where um, policing is about making numbers of arrests to get information. You make, for instance, low-level arrests for marijuana possession, low-level drug offenses. You can do that all day long. It's easy. And then you squeeze those people for information. You don't know whether they're giving you good information or bad information or indifferent. You just don't know. But you figure if you arrest enough people, you can squeeze enough people and you can get enough information You'll find out who's committing the burglaries. I'm going to tell you right now, if you have good relationships with the people in that community, number one, you don't have to squeeze anyone. You don't have to waste your time arresting anyone. They're going to call you, and they're going to give you information. And, I, and I'll be the first one to tell you, when they give you information like that willingly because of the relationship you have with them, that information is going to be good information. You're not going to be wasting your time. Then you can make the arrest, get the evidence you need, and reduce the number of crimes that are being committed
0: within your community. You talked about uh, arrest numbers uh, and numbers, certainly, especially in uh, urban areas. Those those matter a lot more to police departments. But in uh, well, Eleanor Ostrom, who's a Nobel-winning, a prize-winning economist, who. Uh, you know, in her, a lot of her early work was just catalog, cataloging a, a great deal of police information. She tells a story one time a police chief came out of his office uh, or a captain and, and came out and was very upset, visibly upset that somebody had put down a bicycle theft as above the threshold for grand theft. Mm. And uh, he was complaining, saying, look, we never have bicycle thefts that cross this threshold dollar amount, thus making them grand theft." and in a numbers environment that's a strong that's a strong incentive not to have those numbers show up on paper how does that affect everyday policing when you're trying to keep the wrong numbers the bad numbers down
1: well obviously it's important as a police officer to reduce violent crime in your area i mean that's what our goal is that's what we're supposed to do and before I get into this, I, I just need to make, the, you know, make sure folks understand the political climate here because this is about politics. Who hires the police chief, the mayor, or the city manager? Typically it's the mayor, in, like in a city like Baltimore. What's the number one goal of that mayor? To get reelected. How do you get reelected? Show that there's been a decline in violent crime in your city. And that's done through numbers. Okay, so the last thing a mayor wants to see coming from its police department, his police department, are high numbers of violent crime, what we refer to as part one crimes. So what you're talking about here is reclassifying your part one crimes, making them either part two or part three crimes, which are lower on the totem pole. And what's important to the hierarchy in the police department is important to the police officers on the street. Now, why is that? Because whether we're talking numbers of arrests or whether we're talking about classifying crimes. Numbers of arrests, that's how I'm graded. That's how I'm evaluated. I mean, officers know if I make a large number of arrests, I can get promoted. I'll get a good assignment, and that's what we do. When it comes to reclassifying these numbers, if I know my lieutenant who wants to do what the chief wants, if my lieutenant doesn't want to see you know, Part 1 crimes, When I investigate a rape, okay, maybe I'm going to question this victim long and hard enough so that they become frustrated, and they just don't want to report the crime anymore. They don't want to go through it. Or we say, well, ma'am, this doesn't sound like a rape. This sounds more like a second-degree assault, and that's how we write it up. I'm sure the listeners are probably familiar with the HBO series uh, The Wire. And in that series, there was a process that uh, we in policing now use. It's called ComStat. And it came from New York. That's where Baltimore got it from, as many cities have. And it's where the commanders come in before the chief and the bureau chiefs, and we talk about crime. And the last thing you want to do is come in, talk about your high crime numbers, your part ones, and not have an answer for how you're reducing that number. Because if you don't have the right answer, you're going to be reassigned. So it's a very adversarial environment, and and police commanders will do whatever they need to do to reduce, suppress those numbers, even to the point of encouraging your police officers to, well,
0: declassify something,
1: to. Yeah,
0: so it's it's a big problem. So uh, speaking of declassifying, uh, California passed Proposition forty-seven recently, and among other things, it uh, reclassifies a lot of drug and theft crimes involving less than nine hundred and fifty dollars from felonies to misdemeanors. And they've, I understand that California has already begun releasing some people based upon this uh, reclassification. Does that alleviate stress within uh, police departments to possibly treat certain crimes uh, inappropriately?
1: It certainly does. I, I think it's going to be so much better for the police officer on the street. Here's what they are doing in California. They are realizing some things. And, and what they have said is that, oh, look, our ultimate goal is to reduce crime, violent crime. But let's look at it holistically. So what happens when you do that? Number one, you realize that, you know what, the more people we put in prison, the more violent our communities will be. We were thinking that, hey, if we arrest all these people who are committing crimes in our community and put them in prison, then our streets will be safer. But it's just the opposite, because just a very, very small percentage of people we put in prison are going to prison for life. They have to return to your community. So the question is, in what condition do they return to your community? So whenever we can uh, not send someone to prison, it's a good thing. You see, because I remember interviewing a prison warden at one time, and he said to me, you know, when, when someone comes into my institution, they have 24 hours to decide something that's very important. I said, what is that? He says, whether they're going to be predator or prey and not any of them. None of them want to be prey. So if you're not a violent person, as many of the people are that we send to prison, you're going to become violent. You're going to learn how to become violent because you have to survive. Many of these people, they sign up with a gang, and we know prisons are pretty much the breeding ground for gangs. So you you sign up with a gang for protection. And when you return back to that community, you may now have to put in work Put in time, which means committing crimes. So I think what they're realizing is that the fewer people they put in prison, the safer their communities are going to be in California. And, and to redirect those expensive resources, so be, I believe in California, it's about $50,000 a year for someone being in prison, take a portion of that and give people the services that they need. A lot of these crimes that we're talking about with uh, Prop 47 that you're talking about are low-level drug offenses. So let's really deal with the addiction issues here, because a lot of that centers around addiction. So let's really deal with that. And let's look at this from a health perspective, give these people the assistance and help that they need, and then they'll be committing fewer crimes in our communities. There's a lot more to it, but that's just a snapshot of what they're looking at in California. They're looking at this holistically and not just from a policing perspective of arresting any and everyone who commits
0: a crime. We talked a little bit about discretion and the discretion that police uh, have, that is to say, to uh, decide what crimes actually have been committed. Sometimes they abuse that authority, and sometimes it's the discretion Uh, not to treat a young person too harshly because you know the kid, you know his family, you know the community. Um, But how does the war on drugs affect both the discretion that police have and the discretion that they should be given uh, by their commanders? Well, you're right. We do have a lot of discretion,
1: and that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. This is where training and management is so critical. One of the problems that we currently see regarding the drug war and discretion, from that comes disparity issues. Okay, um, We know that, for instance, blacks and whites use and sell drugs at relatively the same rates in this country. But when you look at the arrest numbers, when you look at the Conviction numbers for like crimes, drug-related crimes, um, blacks are arrested at higher uh, rates, convicted at higher rates, and, and do longer do more time at higher rates. And that begins with the discretion of the police officers who, who makes the first contact on the street for whatever that, that violation is. And that's what happens when you don't have proper management and oversight, when sergeants and lieutenants aren't looking at the work. You know, critically looking at the work that their officers are doing and analyzing the data, you know, and asking the questions. Well, why have you made this many arrests here and but you're not doing this here and so on? This is what we are missing in law enforcement. Again, as it relates to the drug war and these drug laws that we have been charged with enforcing, and as we earlier talked about the us versus them mentality you know again i re- i go back to the the hbo series the wire and there's a major of the western district and he's talking to his sergeant in his office and he says you know the drug war has ruined this profession and what he was talking about is that which he also said is that the drug war has pretty much made warriors out of all these people not just the drug dealers on the corners, but also the police officers, and everybody is at everyone else's throats. The us versus them mentality. Police officers, we, we kind of like feel like we have to go out there and arrest people, and in many cases, to, because of the numbers game, they are literally ordered to make the arrest, taking removing their discretion. You know, it, and it's interesting. As sergeants and lieutenants fail to properly coach their men and women, they will question them about a call as to why didn't you arrest that individual? Why didn't you arrest that individual? You know, and now we have this whole problem with the school to prison pipeline that you hear so much about, where even our even our policies in our middle and high schools were so quick to suspend a child or um, expel a child from school for things that when I was in school, it was, okay, you go home and you come back with your mother or your father, and we're going to talk about this. But now we're just so quick to suspend or expel. And it's reflective. I mean, God, just look at our incarceration numbers in this country. We just want to put any and everyone in prison for whatever, and it has made us the number one incarcerating country in the world. And this is supposed to be the land of liberty, the land of the free. Well, obviously it is not. So our police officers are under great pressure to go out here and make arrests, to bring in the numbers, which even though technically they do have discretion, they don't feel as though they have discretion. And here we are.
0: Neil Franklin is Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. You can read more about the failed war on drugs at our website, cato.org.